king should come from a line of warriors, conquerors, and mighty men. But the family of that humble king in a manger was anything but heroic. Tamar was an abused widow. Rahab, a foreign sinner. Ruth, a destitute outsider. Bathsheba, an exploited wife. Yet God was not ashamed of them. He cherished these scandalous women. And at the end of this long line unfit for a king, he chose Mary. God sent his son into the world, born of a woman ordinary and unremarkable, born into a world where he continues to choose the misfits and sinners and outsiders, just like the matriarchs of Christmas. Hello, Woodland Hills. God bless you guys. Bless the congregation, bless the congregation, and it's really good to be here with you during this Christmas season. I hope that you are all getting into the Christmas spirit of things, the spirit of the season. Um, I want to start on a note that's not quite so Christmassy, uh, but needs to be said. Um, a lot of you will know uh, that we had for 20 years, Steve Schmidt was a, our pastor of missions here at the church, and uh, wonderful guy, dear friend of mine and of all of us everyone on staff. He retired five years ago, 72 years old, uh, strong as a horse, no underlying conditions, had been fully vaxxed, but he got COVID, and two weeks later, he died. Um, and so keep the Schmidt family in prayer, that the Holy Spirit comfort their hearts during this tough time. But it just goes to show that this is, this is not something to kid around with. Uh, this COVID business is, is serious. And I bring that up just to remind us again that we strongly encourage folks to wear masks when we come together and gather here, especially now with this Omicron uh, variant that is, they're saying, three times as, as contagious as the Delta uh, virus. We encourage folks to, 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 to wear masks. Not, not necessarily for your sake, though it is for your sake too, but, but more so for the sake of others. Uh, I will be this week getting together with uh, extended family, and I have a relative who's got one lung, and that lung has got emphysema. Uh, if Steve Schmidt, someone who's that strong, could be killed by this virus in two weeks, what would it do to this relative of mine? And so we are taking every precaution so we can get together and, and be as safe as possible. But there's never any sure guarantees. Uh, you, know, you can have false positives and testings and all that kind of things, false negatives. And so, so the, the best policy is to just be cautious in all the areas to maximize, to minimize the chance that I could contract this bug and, and pass it on to them. And many of us have similar situations where you have vulnerable people. In fact, even if you don't think you're vulnerable, you are. Uh, Steve Schmidt didn't seem very vulnerable. And, and so, so we ask you, for the sake of others, if only to put them at ease. Maybe you think it's a really minor thing and that this, we're too overreactive. That's fine. You can think that. But for, to put other people at ease. The kingdom's always other-oriented. And so we like to apply that to, to mask wearing. Okay, so we're in a series on the matriarchs of Christmas. I'm really enjoying doing the series for a number of reasons, but one of them is that, that uh, I'm not usually a storytelling kind of a teacher. I, 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 people encourage me to tell more stories, and I, I tend to be more just didactic. But in this series, I'm telling stories, because the whole purpose is to tell these women's story to show how they fit into the Jesus story. So I'm having a lot of fun doing this. We're looking at the five women that comprise Matthew's genealogy leading up to Jesus. 
And bad news, and that's that I'm not going to make it to all five women. I, at one point, was hoping to do Ruth and Bathsheba today, but uh, after I get into the book of Ruth, it's just so rich that I'm having trouble getting even Ruth in all today. So Bathsheba, I'm sorry. Uh, we'll, we'll take you on next year. Who knows when, but... It's a dicey story, but uh, I, I, uh, I have to put it off. So the relevant passage in the genealogy that we're looking at is Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, where it just says, Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Talked about that last week. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. And so Ruth, who we'll be talking about today, this remarkable, remarkable woman, was the... Uh, the great-grandmother of uh, King David. King David had Moabite blood in him. We'll say more about that in a little bit. So, um, and remember that when we're talking about genealogies in the ancient world, we're talking about kind of the who's who of your story. Who are the important people that comprise your story? And so these are the noteworthy people, and it's just remarkable that Matthew includes five women in a culture that never included women in genealogies. That itself says something. So today we're going to look at Ruth. Um, and I'll tell her story, the first half, or maybe a little more than half of the message, and then I'm just going to bring out two Christmas lessons uh, from this interesting story. So the story begins, we're in, in the time of the judges, this is about the 12th century B.C., two generations before the monarchy came into being with King David. And there's a family living in Bethlehem. Elimelech, I can't stand that name, it's so hard to say, Elimelech and Naomi, and they have two sons. But a famine comes to Judah, a terrible famine, and Bethlehem is in Judah. And so this family has to migrate over to the next door neighbor, which is Moab, the land of Moab. And we know that uh, Moab has, had richer soil than most of Israel had, so they were not as vulnerable to famines. So they go over there because there's, there's something to eat over in, in, in the land of Moab. Uh, and so they settle down in the land of Moab, and the two sons end up marrying two Moabite women. One is Opah, and the other one is our Ruth. And it's important to remember that Ruth is a Moabite. Uh, five times in the book of Ruth, the author says, refers to Ruth as Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. It's because he always wants the reader to remember that we're talking about a Moabite. So why is that significant? Here's why. Moab was the, the, the nation that most resisted the Israelites when they came out of the land of Egypt. They put up a tremendous battle. And that just established bad blood between these neighbors. There's always bad blood between these, 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 these two uh, nations. Um, they, 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 they were on and off in conflict. Sometimes there's times of peace, other times times of war. And this is clearly a time of peace because these, this Jewish family is able to migrate over there. But just because it's a time of peace does not mean that there's not still bad blood between these people groups. There was. Uh, in Genesis, um, we find the origin of the Moabites traced back to, this is one of those stories where you have to sort of try to be decorous in how you describe this, but uh, they trace back to the story about Lot. And you remember Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his two daughters flee Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and the two daughters, they see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and they think that the end of the world is coming. So they think, oh, we have to have children to pass on, you know, the humanity. And so they get their father drunk and, and so on and so on. And they both conceive and that was the origin of the Moabites. And so if, from the Jewish perspective, the Moabites were descendants of, uh, of, of incest. They're, they're inbreeders. They're, they're viewed as hillbillies, you know, just kind of backwards. They're just they're lowlifes. They, they just judge them. In fact, if we read this in the book of Deuteronomy. This is a, uh, a depiction of Yahweh giving these commands, and he says this. No, 
Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. The assembly of the Lord is simply God's people. And so here God is depicted as saying, the Ammonites and the Moabites are a cursed people. They'll never be part of the covenant of Israel. They'll never belong to the people of God. They're outsiders to everything God is doing in this world, which is kind of an odd thing because the whole purpose of raising up Israel was to reach all the nations of the world and to draw them to Yahweh. But here we have a depiction of God saying, no, the, the Moabites are excluded. And says they're excluded to the 10th generation, which is just an ancient Semitic way of saying excluded forever. It's not like, well, when the 11th generation comes, finally we can come into the assembly of the Lord. No, it's, it, ten, it was a symbol of, of completeness. So they're utterly, utterly rejected from the people of God. They're, they're, they're condemned to be eternally outsiders um, and, and, and lowlifes. They're hopeless. They're a hopeless people. There's no hope for these people. And that who is who Ruth is. So remember all that when we, we talk about Ruth. Now let me just put a little uh, detour here. I can't conceive of Jesus ever saying or doing something like that. It's utterly out of character from what we see about Jesus. And, and since Jesus is our full revelation of God, in my opinion, we have to see that something else is going on in this text when Yahweh is presented as cursing these people forever and ever. See, here's the thing. When I come upon a passage like that, since I know who God really is in Jesus, uh, this passage tells me more about the people that God has to work with and what their view of God is than it tells me about the true nature of God because I know the true nature of God in Jesus Christ. And so here we see that this God of love, he will not coerce people. He won't forcefully, coercively change their mind. He won't lobotomize them so that they think true thoughts. He'll influence them with his love, but there'll come a point where God has to accept them as they are if he hopes to continue to influence them. So he stoops down and, and, and bears that false view that they have of him. He bears their sin. And when I read a passage like this, it just tells me how low God had to stoop to stay in relationship with uh, his people. A verse like this should remind us, in my opinion, that what God did on the cross, he's been doing throughout history. On the cross, God stoops an infinite distance to bear our sin and to take on an appearance that, re that reflects the ugliness of that sin. And that's what God's been doing throughout all of history. And that's how I think of passages like this. And all passages in the, in the Old Testament that fall short of uh, the revelation that we, of God that we have in Christ, all of them point to the cross because they remind us that God's been bearing people's sin throughout history. All right, so back to the story. Uh, uh, Elimelech and Naomi uh, and the two sons go to Moab. The sons get married, but unfortunately, uh, within a couple of years, all three men die. We're not told how, but the, the, uh, the father and the two sons die, leaving Naomi and Opa and Ruth as, as widows, not just widows, but childless widows. And as I said last week, that is about the worst spot you can be in in the ancient world. You're in a culture that has been set up by men, is ruled by men, and it's built to make women dependent on men. Uh, the only security you have is belonging to some man, and that is how the ancient Near East viewed, viewed women. So these three women are on their own. A culture that provides very, very few safety nets with these women are on their own. Well, the famine comes to an end, and Naomi starts to head back to Bethlehem. She's still got her property that she left there, so at least she has a place to stay. Um, and the, initially, the two daughter-in-laws go with her. But after a little distance, Naomi stops and turns to the two daughters-in-law and says this. Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. 
May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, my ex-husband, deceased husband, and with me. Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Because that's the only kind of security that this ancient Eastern world offers women. And then she kissed them, and they wept loudly. So she says, go back to your mother's house. She emphasizes mother's house because it was the mother's job, primary job, to, uh, to prepare the daughters for marriage. So she's saying, go back and get ready to get married. And if the Lord will, will then you'll find a husband and finally find some security. Stay in your homeland where your prospects of marriage are going to be good rather than following me where they're going to be less good. Opa sees the point immediately, and she returns back to her homeland, her mother's house, and we never hear from her again. But in what is the most beautiful, the most astonishing passage in the book of Ruth, although I've discovered this week that there's quite a few astonishing passages, but she says this. Ruth responds to Naomi this way. She goes, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you, de- where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if, e- if even death parts me from you. But this passage is astonishing on a lot of levels. Um, for one thing, you know, Ruth is here making this, she's using covenantal language. The language of covenant. In the ancient world, uh, the, the language of covenant creates, it creates family. It creates a new reality. She's pledging her life to Naomi. Till death do us part. She says, even death won't keep me from you. Um, these are marriage-like vows that, that, that Ruth is making to Naomi. And what's really astounding is that the only covenant that women were allowed to participate in was the marriage covenant. But even there, they didn't have any decision-making power. They didn't make any choices. Uh, they didn't decide who their husband was going to be. That was all arranged by men for them. Because the prevailing assumption in the ancient Near East is that women are not capable of making important decisions. So they shouldn't ever initiate things. Those things need to be taken care of by men. All the other covenants in the ancient Near East were done by men. And usually as part of a business deal, but women never participated in that. In fact, I don't know of any other instance in the, in the literature of the ancient Near East where a woman makes a covenant with another woman, uh, where she, they initiate a covenant. But here Ruth, and this gal, she's just so bold, she's doing something that only men are supposed to do. She's initiating this covenant, this marriage-like covenant. She's choosing her own destiny. Destiny was supposed to be chosen by males, according to the ancient Near East. Uh, Ruth is being incredibly countercultural at this point. Um, and we're not told exactly why Ruth so loved Naomi, but it's clear that she did love Naomi. Uh, and that love made her bold. That love made her loyal. That love made her willing to do something that their culture didn't allow women to do. And see, what Ruth is doing here is she's choosing to follow this elderly uh, widow who has no resources and follow her into a foreign land that she knows is going to be somewhat hostile to her. Uh, and to follow her, even though they don't have any kind of survival plan, they don't have any career opportunities, the council doesn't offer them, there's nothing but insecurity in that direction, and yet Naomi chooses it and pledges her life to that out of love for, or Ruth chooses that out of love for Naomi. And she chooses it over the security of her mother's house, over the security of finding a husband. I know I'm supposed to play that find a husband game so I can be secure, but I don't want to play the game anymore. I'm choosing you. It's, it's, it's in its cultural context, just astounding. So now Naomi and Ruth go to Bethlehem, and they stay in Naomi's house. They have a roof over their heads. But 
The next question is, what are we going to eat? How are we going to survive? So Ruth comes up with an idea. Ruth says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of corn behind someone in whose sight I may find favor. So they arrive in, in Judah. Uh, the famine has ended, and now it's the, the harvest time, uh, the, the barley season. It's, it happens in the spring. And, and there's an Old Testament law, in fact, several of them, that's, that say that uh, landowners, wealthy landowners who plant crops, when they harvest their crop, they're supposed to leave some behind for the poor, for the destitute, uh, for immigrant, the foreigner, uh, those who need refuge. It, it, it's the only safety net that this culture offers, and it was the compassion of wealthy people on the poor. And the Old Testament commands it. So Ruth says, it's harvest time. I'll go out and I'll, I'll follow the harvesters, and whatever they leave behind, I can pick, and that's how we can eat. I'll just, because I'm one of those destitute women. But she says, I'm going to do it in sight of them so they'll have compassion on me. Uh, usually, the, those who picked the leftovers waited till the harvesters were gone and then came and, 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 and got the leftovers. But Ruth says, no, I'm going to follow right behind them so they can see me. Because it's harder to not have compassion on someone when you can see them. Uh, these out-of-sight, kind of abstract immigrants, whatever, no, they won't be that motivated to leave much behind, but if they see me, perhaps they'll have compassion on me. But see, what she's doing is a very risky thing because the harvesters are all men. And here is this going to be a woman alone following them to get whatever she can of the leftovers. And they might have compassion on her, but then again, they might not. They might want to have their way with her, especially because she's a widow, so she doesn't belong to any man, and therefore you're not breaking, violating anyone's property rights by having your way with her. Plus, she's a Moabite, and these folks are all Jews. And so she's a hillbilly, and why respect that? So she's taking a tremendous risk going out there. And you can see the risk she's taking because when she comes to the field of Boaz, who I'll get to in a moment here, the first thing Boaz says to her is, only pick in my field. From now on, only come to this field. The fields would be lined up alongside each other, and the poor would just kind of migrate from field to field. He says, just stay in my field because I can protect you from my harvesters so they will not harm you. Harm you being a euphemism for having their way with you. So she was putting herself at great risk here. Uh, it turns out that Boaz, he had done this for a number of destitute young women. Uh, they, they refer to these servants of Boaz who would, were, were working the field, and Ruth joins them. And so he was taking these women who were very, very vulnerable in this world and, and, and giving them some protection. Because the harvesters work for Boaz, and so as long as Boaz says you can't touch, they're not going to touch. So... She is, is, is got her plan there, and she's willing to risk her life in, in order to do this. Um, and so she, she uh, catches Boaz's eye. Uh, Boaz notices her, and there's some indications throughout the book of Ruth that Ruth was rather attractive. But Boaz notices her, and he says to one of his harvesters, who, is, who does this woman belong to? Literally, that's the question he asks. And he's asking who is protecting her, and the guy says, well, she's a widow. Uh, she's a Moabite widow, and actually she came over here with a distant relative of yours named Naomi. Uh, it turns out that Boaz was some kind of distant relative of, the man, of Amimelech who died. Uh, so there's some kind of family relationship there. And so Boaz immediately says, goes to Ruth and he says to Ruth, I want you to stay in my field, just like these other women, and, and I'll protect you here. Um, but then Boaz uh, goes way beyond treating her as one of the regular servant girls. He begins to show great favor towards her. 
Uh, he invites her to, he says, when you're thirsty, just come up and drink my harvester's water. You don't have to carry around your own water jug. That will free up, you know, space for you to carry more grain. Uh, and then when dinner time comes, you can sit at dinner with us. He invites her to join the table. Um, and then he tells his harvesters, uh, I want you to leave a lot of extra grain for that one. And this is done out of compassion for Naomi, his distant relative, but also out of compassion and perhaps fondness for Ruth. Just showers her with blessing. And these guys leave a lot behind. It says that when uh, Ruth came home, finally at the end of the day, came home, she had an ephah of, of grain. An ephah was a unit of measurement that would be anywhere between 20 and 40 pounds of grain. And I've read that that is more than usually a peasant could hope to pick of the leftovers in a month. So she comes home with all this food. And Naomi sees all this food and she says, who gave you that? And Naomi says, well, that distant relative of yours, Boaz. And Naomi says, thank God. And then the first thing out of her mouth isn't thank God for all this food. She says, thank God, because Boaz won't let the guys have their way with you. And it just reiterates how, what a dangerous thing this was for her to do. It, Naomi shares with, uh, or Ruth shares with Naomi the kindness that Boaz shown to her, this this Moab immigrant, he's so kind to her, this wealthy Jewish landowner. And Naomi begins to conceive of an idea. Because she realizes that even though Boaz is much older than Ruth, he is a relative. So he could serve as a kinsman redeemer. I talked about the kinsman redeemer two weeks ago with Tamar. This was uh, the a kinsman redeemer was someone who was supposed to redeem his brother's bloodline if the brother died and left a widow. So if the brother dies and there's a widow there, the next available, the next eldest brother is supposed to marry her to carry on the brother's bloodline. But if there's no brothers, it can go out to the extended family, to cousins and whatever. Um, and so Naomi's thinking he could be our kinsman redeemer. Uh, this might be our ticket out of destitution. So, so uh, she's thinking of this plan and um, kind of playing off of Boaz's fondness for, 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 for Ruth. Now, it turns out that Boaz actually wasn't the next in line. There was another one ahead of him. And, but that person hasn't stepped up. They've been here in, in, in Judah for probably about a month during this harvesting season, and no one else has stepped up. So Naomi's thinking, well, then let's, let's, play on, let's go after Boaz. Um, he seems to be fond of you. So time passes, and Boaz does not step up. And it's coming to the end of the harvest season. And Naomi knows that once the harvest season is done, Ruth doesn't, there'll be no reason to go over to the field and, and there'll be no opportunity for Boaz to see Ruth. And so this window of opportunity is closing. So she devises kind of a radical plan. Not a kind of radical plan. It's a, it's a really radical plan. Uh, this lady who's not supposed to be able to make any decisions, can't make any, you know, take any initiative on anything because she's a woman. She comes up with a really uh, radical initiative plan. She says to Ruth, okay, we got to act quick. Uh, take off those servant clothes that you got on, dirty from all that picking stuff, wash yourself up really good, put on your best dress, get your game on, do your hair upright, and put on perfume. Because perfume in the ancient world, when hygiene was not yet very involved, was a real asset. And so she says, get your game on, girl, and then go down to the threshing floor where they're, they're doing this harvest. The guys all sleep down there. They sleep next to their grain because they don't want anyone to steal it. So throughout the harvest season, they sleep outdoors. And she says, you go down there, but make sure you don't see, let any man see you. And the reason she says that is because uh, 
The only women who are out at night smelling good and looking good and dressed to the hilt are prostitutes. So any guy who saw you would see that you're a prostitute, which means you're not, you don't belong to a man, which means they're not violating your property rights if they have their way with you. And uh, um, they won't care if you tell them that you're not a prostitute. You're done for. So you've got to be very careful. So here again, Ruth is, is, is doing something very risky. She's, uh, this, gal has got, this gal has got courage. And then Naomi says, he says, wait until you see Boaz and see where he's lying. And wait till he's eaten all he can eat and he's drunken, he's drank all he could drink. And, and, and he's now laying on the floor, passed out. Then she says this. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. And then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. He will tell you what to do. In other words, you just stay silent. Let him lead now. Because... Already, this is going to be a pretty forward movement we're doing here, so just, just stay quiet. All that you tell me, she says, I will do. Which, uh, we'll see here in a moment, is not quite what happened. Um, yeah, so go down and uncover his feet. Why does she say uncover his feet? And, lie, and then lie by, by them. It sounds like a lap dog. Keep his feet warm. Now, it, it, it could just be that, that Naomi's saying, keep his feet warm so that when he wakes up, he'll see you at his feet, and you'll be dressed to the hilt, and, and, and it's her way of saying, I want, I, I'm here to serve you. She says, I, I, later on, she says, I'm Ruth, your servant. And to be a wife was to be a servant. So she's saying, I'm available. But it's also likely that there's a sen- sensual connotation to this. Uh, in ancient uh, Israel, Israeli uh, idiom, feet, referring to someone's feet, could be used as a polite euphemism for refer- referring to their genitalia. And we find that several uses in the Bible. It's, it's, when they're talking about feet, it's clear that they're talking about genitalia. So this association between feet and genitalia, when she's keeping his feet warm, it is communicating something sensual. Uh, and and, and it, it, what she's really doing here is she's saying, I'm available for you. This package here, nice smelling, good looking, hair done. this is available for you. Uh, and, and she's basically proposing to Boaz. And this becomes clear when Boaz finally wakes up. At midnight, Boaz was startled and turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he said, wiping the gunk out of his eyes, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next in kid. Um, it's, it's, it, this, is, this, is, this is, I think, just amazing. He wakes up, and here's this good-looking, well-dressed, nice-smelling Moabite woman at his feet. And he asks, who, who are you? And she says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over me. Now, Naomi had said, just shut up and let him do the driving. This is already forward enough. But this Ruth has got chutzpah. She must sense this is the moment. This is the moment. I, I, I didn't notice this till this morning, honestly. Uh, she, she, she sees that this is the moment to seize. And so she's not going to stay quiet. She says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over me. Now that, if you read Ezekiel 16, we know that that's a uh, reference to a man taking a woman under her cloak, under his wing, as it were. You're spreading your protection over her. You're sharing your bed with her, which means you're making her your wife. So here Ruth is, in a culture where, I mean, she's already initiated one covenant vow, which, which is unheard of. But here, in a culture where women don't take any initiative, marriages are all arranged, the last thing you'd ever expect to find anyone doing is a woman proposing to a man in a sensual, provocative way. But that's exactly what Ruth is doing here. You're not supposed to decide your own destiny. She's choosing your destiny. She's choosing who she wants to marry. It's, it's, 
it's, it's, this gal's got chutzpah. Ruth has got chutzpah. She's got, yeah, she's, and she's a, she's a Moabite hillbilly proposing, a young Moabite hillbilly proposing to a wealthy Jewish landover. It, she's just breaking all the cultural norms that you can break here. Boaz then responds to her, and it turns out he knows about this Levite law requiring the brother to marry the, the wife, and, um, but he also knows that he's not next in line. And so he says to her, well, actually, there's another guy who gets first choice. Um, I'll go talk to him tomorrow, and if he doesn't want to marry you, then I will accept this, your offer. I'll accept your proposal. Maybe the first time in history a man said, I'll accept your proposal. It's a... Uh, well, so Boaz goes to this guy, and, and the way he presents the, the issue, uh, it makes it very easy for this guy to turn down because it's all about how, you know, the extra finances that would be incurred here. And uh, so the guy says, no, thank you. So Boaz goes back and marries Ruth, and they live happily ever after, though Boaz was old, so there probably wasn't a whole lot of after. But they live long enough for, for, to give birth to Ovid, who, gives birth to, or who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. And that's how Ruth makes it into Jesus' who's who. The who's who of Jesus' story, and therefore the who's who of the Christmas story. So two points I want to bring out from this. The first one I talked about last week. Um, as with Tamar and Rahab, Ruth, is, Ruth foreshadows. She's in this hall of fame, this who's who of Jesus' story, because she foreshadows the radical liberation and, and reversal of fortunes that the kingdom of God is supposed to bring to women. The freedom that the kingdom of God is to bring to women. Uh, here, were it not for Ruth's loyalty, she never would have made it on to that, that, that Hall of Fame, her loyalty to, to, uh, to, to Naomi. And, and, and were she not willing to choose the love of a widow over the security that a man would provide, she wouldn't be here. Uh, if she hadn't refused to accept this sexist cultural norm that women can't make decisions, that women, you know, too emotional, they, they can't be trusted, that women can't initiate covenants, she, she rejects all of that. And if she hadn't rejected all of that, this never would have happened. If she hadn't been twice willing to put her own life in harm's way, uh, her, risk her well-being for the sake, uh, out of love for Naomi, uh, this never would have happened. And if she were not willing to break every social convention you can break in this culture by proposing to this man, let alone a wealthy Jewish businessman, if she hadn't had that boldness, that chutzpah, well, this never would have happened. Uh, Ruth's heroism foreshadows the freedom for women that Jesus came to this world to bring. And that makes this part of the whole Christmas message. According to God's original design, men and women were created both equally in the image of God. And in God's original design, God wants men and women to partner together as equals, whether in marriage or in ministry or just taking care of the earth and the animal kingdom, which was our first mandate. We're to work as equal partners. And what Jesus reveals is that when the kingdom of God is established, when he comes in and brings the kingdom of this world on that first Christmas morning, uh, well, well, that view of women is to be restored. And women are to be put back in their place. And their place is on the same level as men in all areas. And, and so where God reigns, we learn from Jesus in the whole New Testament, the full humanity and the full dignity and the full giftedness of female image of God bearers is to be acknowledged and honored and respected and protected and celebrated and cherished. Somebody say amen. Amen. So Ruth's story anticipates this radical equality that the kingdom of God brings, as does Tamar and Rahab. But she's in here for another reason as well. She's in here because she was a Moabite. And were it not for the fact 
that Ruth was willing to become a illegal, uh, uh, an immigrant in a hostile land where she knows she's not going to be looked on kindly, and were it not for her willingness to suffer the judgment as a quintessential outsider. Moabites are quintessential outsiders. She's part of a cursed people group. She's part of a hopeless people group, and were she not willing to face that racism and out of the sheer chutzpah of her character overcome that racism, she never would be on that in, in that genealogy. And so what we find is that Ruth foreshadows the truth that, that in the kingdom that Jesus brings in that first Christmas morning, all judgments along racial and national lines are to come to an end. Uh, where, 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 the king, where God reigns, all us-them thinking along racial and national lines and along every other line is to come to an end. Uh, where the kingdom of God reigns, the, the all insider-outsider distinctions along racial and national lines and every other line is to be done away with. Our governments may declare war on other nations. They may declare other nations to be enemies. But we as the people of God are never allowed to see them as enemies. Um, we, as the people of God, who know what God's doing in this world, you know, whether they're Chinese or Russia or North Korea or Iranian, we're to see human beings who are made in the image of God, human beings who have unsurpassable worth, as is evidenced by the fact that Jesus died for them. And so in the kingdom, there are no cursed peoples, there are no cursed Moabites or Ammonites or Hittites or Jebusites or Termites or Chinese or Russian or North Korean or Iranian. There no, there's no curse there. In fact, Jesus died to remove the curse. Amen? And, and, and so God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and Jesus died for all the people of this world. And we're to look at the world through that lens, not through whatever lens our government has on them. Thus there are people made in the image of God. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, uh, if I have time, I'd like to read this, but I don't have time. But he says this, that when Jesus died on the cross, he created this one new humanity. Uh, one new humanity. It's a start over. And, and in this one new humanity, Paul says, uh, all walls of division are to be torn down. All hostility is to come to an end. All the judgments are to come to an end. The divisions are to be no more. Where God reigns, xenophobia, which is the fear of, of, of the one who's different, or suspicion towards the one who's different, that's xenophobia, is to be replaced by xenophilia, which is the love of the person who's different. And this word is the word that's translated hospitality in the New Testament. You welcome in the stranger who's Different. The stranger who's outside your normal community. Uh, the one that you don't know, you welcome them in. You treat them well. You take care of them. Uh, xenophobia is to be revo- re- reversed by xenophilia. And where God reigns, therefore, the diversity is something to be sought after, pursued, and cherished. Not something to be feared and avoided. Where, 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 the kingdom, where, where God reigns, diversity itself should be a cause for unity. It's one of the things we celebrate. It's one of the things we rally around. It should never be a cause for division. Amen. That's why in, in, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 7, we get this vision that, that, we're, that, that, that God's driving the world towards. And it's a vision where all the peoples of the earth are gathered around the throne of God. And it says that, that people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue and every culture are gathered there to worship God. And they bring the distinctiveness of their cultures, the glory of the, their, their nation, to the throne of God. Uh, all that's wrong with it has been purged away, and now the, 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 the diversity of, 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 the, of humanity reflects the creativity and the glory of God. Amen? And, and, and our job, church, the God, job of God's people, is to take, make that as real as possible right now, to manifest that reality right now, to manifest the one new humanity for which Jesus died, which means this is part of the atonement. This is not a negotiable thing. It's not a liberal thing. It's not anything other than... Instruction from God. He's created this one new humanity, 
And, and, and our job is to live that out. And here's the thing. The one new humanity that Jesus created, that's God's gift to us. Uh, the way we live that out is our gift back to God. And it's our gift to the world because it helps the world as well. So I want to end with four quick little points. The first one is, uh, how are you living that out? What does it look like for you to be one who pursues and celebrates diversity in your own life? What does it look like for you and maybe your family to be pursuing diversity? Uh, or you and the community that you share life with to be pursuing and celebrating diversity? The more integrated, and this varies from demographic to demographic depending where you're at, but all other things being equal, the more diversity you include in your life, the more diverse your, exp your experience, the more cross-cultural your life, the more enriched you're going to be and the more of, of that aspect of the kingdom that you reflect. To the degree that you're siloed in homogeny and surrounded by sameness, to that degree your life's not going to be enriched, to that degree you'll be impoverished, and to that degree you're not manifesting the one new humanity for which Jesus died. And so we walk with the awareness, asking the question, how can I integrate more diversity in my life? Alter your life a little bit so you're going to different places where you meet people who are different from you, who look different, have different cultures. Uh, and whatever. Secondly, educate yourself. Here's the thing. You can't understand the present when it comes to national and racial tensions. You can't understand the present unless you understand the past. You interpret the, the events that go on in our culture, and here I'm speaking specifically of America, <clears throat> but you interpret things differently if you understand the history behind it than if you're just seeing it as an isolated unit. Educate yourself. Uh, know here, it, for Americans here, and those congregation apply it to whatever country you're in. Each one's going to be unique. But uh, learn about the history of racism in America. And I can guarantee you, you didn't get into high school. Uh, if you want some resources on this, uh, we have some resources up here. We put the resources up there. Just go to whchurch.org slash get involved. And you have some resources there that uh, can broaden your awareness of, of these things. Um, this is especially important. I'll just say this. This is especially important here in America because the honest truth is that the racial tensions that we have in our culture right now here are almost all the church's fault. You think that if the white Europeans who conquered America, and it was conquered, not discovered, but do you think that if they had cared at all about the one new humanity, would it ever have occurred to them to import millions of Africans and make slaves out of them for four centuries? Would, would it ever occur to them to treat the indigenous population the way they did, sometimes just wiping out entire tribes? It would never have happened. It was a failure of the church, and that original son of America is still with us to this day. That's what we're grappling with. So it's all the more important that we, the church today, swim upstream aggressively in the other direction. Know what's going on here. And be asking the question, what can you do to reverse that? Amen. Amen. The third thing is, 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 like Boaz, Boaz showed that he was a righteous man by the kindness this wealthy Jewish landowner showed to this Moabite immigrant. Uh, and he showed himself to be a righteous man because you find throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Scripture, this emphasized. Take care of the outsider, the widow, the orphan, the, 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 the person seeking refuge, the immigrant, the foreigner. It's reiterated over and over again as a high priority. Show hospitality. The people of God are to be hospitable, welcoming to all. Now, I know when I say foreigner and immigrant, if you've been politicized, those are trigger words. And everything's been politicized these days. And for some, oh, baby, speaking code for immigration policy. And that'll make some people really happy. And that'll make some people really mad. 
I'm not smart enough to run a country, okay? I'm not trying to run any country. And these words aren't directed to countries. It's directed to the people of God. We need to ask, what can we do to be welcoming? Whatever the government does, what can we be doing to, to welcome in the stranger? That's why we're doing this fundraiser here. And that's why some folks are volunteering their time with, with, with uh, uh, Arrive, uh, uh, Arrive, which is a ministry that helps people get integrated here in Minnesota. And so we want to welcome in our friends from Afghanistan and, and make them feel at home and welcome in the people from Congo and make them feel at home. And we show their worth to us by what we're willing to sacrifice for them. That's what love always does. Love, love is ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. And so I want to re- re- reiterate Dan's point about the importance of getting on board with the, the, this program. Let's welcome them in. And the final thing I'll say is just this. There's times when events unfold in such a way where the church needs to stand in solidarity with a people group that are being treated unjustly, inhumanely. Um, and we need to lend our voice to their collective ouch. Whatever, whatever say-so we have, we want to use it on behalf of them and to say, this is wrong. Draw attention to this to bring about a change. This happened after the George Floyd murder. Um, I, it, was, it was just wonderful. The, it would have been wonderful if more white churches got on board with this, but a lot of white churches gathered around and, and, and gathered around our black brothers and sisters, and we had these meetings that went on and, 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 and joined in protest together. There's a time for that, a place for that. And, and our motive for doing it, whatever motive other people have, our motive for doing it is to manifest the one new, beautiful, diverse humanity for which Jesus gave his life. And, and, to, and to tear down every wall that keeps us from manifesting that. So this Christmas, folks, let's remember Ruth the heroic Ruth, the heroic Moabite, the one who was supposed to be a cursed outsider forever. She finds a way not only on the inside, but she makes it onto the who's who of Jesus' story and therefore the who's who of the Christmas story. And so as we celebrate Christmas this, this year, let's remember that part of the meaning of Christmas is that Jesus came to bring equality to the sexes and Jesus came to manifest that one new humanity and to tear down every wall that could possibly divide us. And then... Live in the question, how can you be a gift to God by living this out consistently? Father, thank you for the freedom that you bring, the liberation that you bring, the equality that you bring, the vision of the kingdom that you bring. You lead us by beauty. You transform us by your beauty and the beauty of the vision that, 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 that you have. Thank you for, for Ruth, as well as for Tamar and, and Rahab, for these courageous, wonderful women who were willing to go against the culture to, to manifest a truth about what Jesus would do when he came. And thank you most of all for the gift of Jesus. We live to give it back to you by how we integrate it into our life. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.